Our Father in heaven, we need your help to understand your word, but even more, we need your help to accept and obey your word. So we pray this morning you would help us and help me to be clear. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, our topic today is how to enter the kingdom of God. If you've got Mark 10 open in front of you, uh, you'll see that's the issue uh, most of the way through, verse 14, verse 15, about entering the kingdom. It's the issue in verse 23 or 24, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's the issue in verse 25. Apparently camels have more chance of entering a needle than rich people entering the kingdom of God. So, we're beginning this morning about how to enter the kingdom of God. So by the end, we'll think about how to live inside the kingdom, what life is actually like inside. Before I go on, I, I, I want to say that I realize not all of us listening would care about the question, how do I enter the kingdom of God? It might not be top of our mental list. Um, I'm partly saying that because I know one of, the, one of the few positive side effects of us being uh, online with our services is that folks can listen in who wouldn't want to come into a church building, wouldn't think of becoming a Christian. If that's you, hello, I'm glad you're here. But I guess if it is you, the question of kind of how do I enter the kingdom of God, or, or if you look at the guy we'll meet in verse 17 who's asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, maybe questions like that sound a bit disconnected from reality, just a kind of religious question, miles from the everyday issues we looked at last week of marriage and divorce. Well, if that is you, please stay tuned in, because actually this question is the most important question. God's kingdom is the most wonderful place to be. Why do I say that? Well, already in Mark, Jesus has been teaching that although his kingdom looks small and pathetic now, actually it's the only one that lasts forever. At the moment, we're seeing the kingdoms of this world, the United Kingdom, for example, shaken to their foundations by a single virus. It's a reminder that only God's kingdom, his eternal kingdom, is the safe place to be long term don't get me wrong, it's absolutely wonderful to be part of the UK. I'm, I'm glad we are. We have amazing access to the NHS, for which we're hugely grateful and appreciative. But even the best human health care cannot offer eternal life as part of the citizenship package, which, of course, as mortal humans, is precisely what we need. Actually, God's kingdom is a wonderful place to enter, not just for eternity... But even now, it's the most beautiful kingdom to be part of. Why do I say that? Because it's characterized by Jesus, by Jesus' servant-hearted, other people first, sacrificial love. All through this section, chapters 8 to 10, and which began with blind Peter, seeing that Jesus was the king, it will end with blind Bartimaeus, declaring that Jesus is the son of God. But in the middle we see what kind of king he is, what kind of kingdom he's growing. And it is the most beautiful kingdom, the most different, upside down, 
surprising kingdom, a kingdom where the king himself lays down his life for its subjects. He serves us, sacrifices himself willingly, deliberately goes to his death to pay for our rebellion so we might live. And that sacrificial service sets the tone for the rest of us. It's a wonderful kingdom. I wonder if you can hear the contrast uh, with where we live. This is not a place that runs for the benefit of those in authority. There's no suspicion, whether it's true or not, of one rule for them, another for us. There is no elite status, because this kingdom is where the king sets the tone by laying down his life for others. Of course you'd want to be part of it. But today's question is how do you enter? How do you get in? What are the requirements for entry to Jesus' kingdom? Or, or to put it in other words, what is God's immigration policy? I think there are two basic common sense answers to that question. I wonder if you've heard them. I wonder if you've felt them. According to Jesus, both of them are wrong. The first popular answer is that there are no entry requirements to God's kingdom. There is total freedom of movement. After all, God's a nice old grandpa. He's never going to close the door to anyone. He, he's like the, the passport officer who's kind of engrossed in his crossword. He's just waving people through. Uh, the barrier's wide open. God will forgive me. That's his job, even if I never got round to actually asking him. That may be popular, but Jesus does say time and time again, it is not true. Look at verse 15. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. It turns out if you come the wrong way, with the wrong attitude, not like a child, you cannot enter. Entry is denied. So it's not just a free-for-all. But at that point, I think it brings us to the second option, the alternate assumption about God's immigration policy, which is this. Clearly, he must operate on a points-based system. After all, he can't let really evil people in. There has to be some kind of standard maintained. But obviously, none of us are perfect. So maybe God kind of weighs up the points, like Australia, or perhaps soon, like the UK. Will you add enough value if so, then you can come in. And so we, we pile up our failures over here and our good deeds over here. And if the scales tip, well then if you've got enough charity or morality or respectability, the barrier swings open and, and through you go. I'm not a bad person. I try my best not to hurt people, pay my taxes. Surely God will let me in. This morning we're seeing there is only one way to enter God's kingdom and it's emphatically not through a points-based system. If this was a meritocracy, no one, literally no one, would, would ever swing that barrier open. None of us have managed to hit the standards. We should kind of realize that after the last few weeks where we've seen the, the seriousness of sin and the, the pervasiveness of sin. It's in my heart, it's in my eyes, it's in my arms and feet. I'd be kidding myself if, if I think that there's, there's anything but a massive millstone kind of, kind of holding down the barrier at my end. So what is the answer? 
How do you get in? Well, let's find out from the king himself. If you've looked at the handout online, you'll see we've got four points, but the first one is the most important. Um, so if you're a parent whose uh, children were at Sparklers and, and already things are going crazy, well, please listen to this first point um, before you do crowd control. Point one, entry belongs to those who come empty-handed. This is the basis of everything today. In God's kingdom, entry belongs to those who come empty-handed. Why do I say that? Oh, because that's what Jesus is teaching in verses 13 to 16 with these little children. Let's pick up the story from verse 13. (coughs) Jesus, as usual, is surrounded by um, people clamoring for his attention. Um, Social distancing obviously wasn't in play. And the disciples, they've kind of taken it on themselves to to take the role of bouncers. They're making sure that the right sort of people made it to the front of the queue. I almost met the queen once, um, but I was a few people deep. I didn't make the front of the queue. And so, verse 13, when people were bringing children to Jesus that they might touch them, the disciples rebuked them. Of course they did, because Jesus is not just the most famous teacher in the region, he's God's chosen king. Like, he's the hope for humanity. He's a big deal. He doesn't have time for a kind of meet and greet with just about anyone. He's not operating some kind of Santa's grotto for under fives. Of course, he's above that, they're thinking. But verse 14, Jesus doesn't think like that. When he saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the children of God." And now here's our big point. Here's the key announcement about God's immigration policy. Verse 15, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. The barrier is open if you come like a child. Entry is refused for those who don't. So then what is it about a child that Jesus is teaching us to emulate? Is it because children are especially innocent? Absolutely not. Uh, Just ask one of the parents in the church family if you want evidence for that. Um, None of us are teaching our children to lie or to snatch toys or hit other people. Quite the opposite. We're trying to reinforce the opposite. But it just comes out naturally. It's not innocence. Is it because children are, are particularly gullible? You know, they don't have the intellectual maturity to think critically. And Jesus is just saying, if you want to become a Christian, you've got to turn off your brain. Again, no, emphatically not. Can't be that because Jesus spends so much time teaching and reasoning with people. He wants our brains engaged. So then, what is it about a child? Well, quite simply, they are dependent, utterly dependent. That is, they are empty-handed receivers. They bring nothing to the table, no contribution. They just take provision from others. You can see that is the point Jesus is making from verse 15, because he says the thing we're to copy is the way a child receives. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child. It's about the way children receive things. So, have you ever watched a young child opening birthday or Christmas presents? Let me tell you, it's usually not a struggle for them to receive. In fact, here are three responses I've never heard a child say to a gift. Mummy, you shouldn't have. This is too much. Or, I'm sorry, Grandad, I haven't got you anything. 
or, right, how much do I owe you? Children are utterly unashamed receivers, don't pay their way. And it's not just presents, it's the same with food or clothes. In fact, Jesus here is probably um, pointing out very young children, verse 16. He, he takes them in his arms and blesses them. So he probably should be thinking about creche. It's not running today, lockdown. But think back to creche here. Jesus picking up one of those babies in his arms and saying, this is a great picture of how to enter the kingdom. Entirely reliant on someone else. Entirely empty-handed. Someone else providing for you, cleaning you up, carrying you in, getting you ready. Receive the kingdom as a gift. That's point one. Entry belongs to those who come empty-handed like a dependent child. And it is a wonderful, wonderful piece of news. It means whoever you are, whatever you've done, however weak or incapable of changing you may feel, Jesus does not say, smarten yourself up and then we talk. Sort yourself out and then we can meet. No, he says, come to me, empty-handed. I'll give you a place in my kingdom, forgiven forever for free. In the most important question of life, you don't have to pay your way. It's absolutely wonderful. But we find it very hard to accept. This is our second scene, our second point. We meet another person from verse 17 onwards, another person longing to get a few minutes with Jesus, and he couldn't be more different from the children. The disciples thought that the children were a waste of time for Jesus, but this guy, I'm sure they thought, was the most promising of candidates for kingdom entry. I'm sure if they had one of those little divider ropes, they would have been un undoing it to open up the express lane, the kind of VIP entry system. Come down, sir, Jesus will definitely see you shortly. Why is he such a fantastic candidate? Well, all sorts of reasons. For a start, he's a grown-up, so he can add value. Look at his enthusiasm, verse 7. He was, as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up. I mean, that's keen. Look at his humility. He ran up and knelt before him. Look at his respect. He asked him, good teacher. And most of all, look at his sincerity spiritually. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Let me just say that as ministers, we live for that kind of inquiry. Not the kneeling bit, obviously, but, but the content. And it doesn't actually happen that often. Often the conversations at a church door or around town, that they struggle to get anywhere near matters of eternity. But this guy, he's a serious inquirer. He's asking a great question. Oh, and did I mention, he's also seriously rich. I mean, the disciples must have been tingling with excitement. No need for a bouncer here. Sign him up. I mean, he could bankroll the kingdom. Jesus says, not so fast. Because it turns out this guy is trying to enter the kingdom in exactly the opposite way to a child. Not receiving it with that childlike, empty-handed dependence. And so, as we'll see, he fails to enter. So point two, entry to God's kingdom is impossible for those who don't come empty-handed. 
verse 15 had given us the, the principle, there's only one way in, but now it's kind of fleshed out in person in this man. Entry is impossible for those who don't come empty-handed. So then let's have a look at what this guy is holding onto. And we're going to watch Jesus gradually, gently expose his self-dependence. Firstly, let's just go back to his question. Uh, it seemed like such a good question, didn't it? Verse 17. And what must I do to inherit eternal life? But actually, it's all the wrong way round. Jesus has just said, it's not about what you do, it's about receiving a gift. The guy kind of seems to know that because he talks about inheriting eternal life. Inheritances are given, a gift, not something you do or earn. But he really wants to do something, wants to be able to guarantee it by his effort. And so Jesus does begin to expose that self-dependence. At first, Jesus is really gentle, really subtle. Verse 18, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. Jesus here isn't denying that he himself is good and in fact is God. I think he's, he's poking the man's um, bubble of, of lack of self-awareness morally. He's just putting the first pinprick in. You see, if no one is good except God alone, what does that say about this man? However hard he's trying, does he really think he'll do enough to swing the barrier open to eternal life? That's the first gentle poke, but more is needed. So then Jesus takes him to God's law, takes him to the Ten Commandments, or actually the Six Commandments. I don't know if you notice that. Jesus skips over the first four commandments, the ones all about loving God wholeheartedly. He jumps to the back six, the social six, to which the man can say, I think in all sincerity, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. This is a moral guy. He's socially decent. We've got to realize that. He does have a massive blind spot when it comes to loving God. We'll see that in a moment. We need to realize he was genuinely just a great guy. The kind of guy you, you could trust, you'd like to do business with. A good family man, respected his parents, trustworthy in what he said, faithful in marriage. If we met him, we'd be impressed. Jesus looks at him, verse 21, with real love. This guy's so keen to do the right thing, but he still doesn't get it. Jesus knows no one gets into the kingdom of God waving their school report, their moral credentials. Because whatever we think, our holiness or purity and perfection is a long way from what God calls good. No one's good except God alone. So how can you expect to hit the moral mark just by yourself? And then to prove the point, to expose the man's real problem, Jesus puts his finger on the exact sin issue in this man's heart, his idol of wealth. You see, having previously skipped the first commandment, have no other gods but me, Jesus now goes straight for it. Verse 21, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Jesus says, actually, you don't just need to let go of your belief that you can perform your way to eternal life. You need to let go of your money. You need to let God be God in that area. 
And even though Jesus offered the most amazing promise, verse 21, of eternal riches, treasure in heaven, the man goes away sad because he had so much to lose. Now, we don't actually know why this man chose his wealth over Jesus. Was it because he loved the, the lifestyle that being wealthy could bring? The great meals, the nice place to live, the clothes, the leisure? Maybe. We're not told. I wonder if in the context, the biggest problem, though, was that he wasn't prepared to give up his self-dependence, his self-sufficiency, his security. It turns out morally and financially, he didn't want to end up empty-handed, didn't want to have to come to Jesus with nothing to offer, dependent, needing to receive handouts, receiving the kingdom like a child. And so he walks away sad. And then Jesus says, very soberingly, he's not an isolated exception. Verse 23, Jesus looked around, said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples are shocked. They're amazed. They thought riches were a blessing. Jesus is saying they can be a barrier to coming to Jesus. Not least, I think, because rich people are used to taking care of themselves, used to self-sufficiency. Makes it hard to receive the kingdom like a child. Makes it hard to come to Jesus and admit that I'm morally and spiritually bankrupt, that I'm in huge, unassailable debt with, debt with my maker, that I need a handout. It, it's hard to do that for a rich person. And most of us are rich in global terms. Hard to accept. As verse 24 says, Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, verse 25, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, those of you who are into craft, I don't know if you've ever tried to introduce a camel into a sewing session um, or vice versa, take a, take a sewing needle to a safari park for a comparison of scale. But just in case you haven't, let's just, let me just say that Jesus here is talking about something that's impossible. Uh, there's an old story that, that says that there was a gate in Jerusalem called the Eye of a Needle, and this is just about camels taking their bags and possessions off to get through the gate. That is made up. It comes from much later. It's not true. What Jesus is saying is it's impossible. Verse 27 makes that clear. In fact, there's a, there's a all-age talk I can't get out of my head that I watched someone do where they had a pantomime a cow dressed up as a camel. I don't necessarily recommend this, by the way, but uh, a camel-shaped pantomime cow and a needle, and they were trying to kind of back up the, the camel and, and get it through. Needless to say, after lots of different kinds of attempts, it's impossible, just impossible. Verse 26, the disciples are still reeling then who can be saved? And verse 27, Jesus puts it in black and white. Jesus looked at them and said, with man it's impossible. Entry is impossible for human beings trying to do it ourselves, trying to pay our way, or trying to hold on to our former idols. Not difficult, impossible. No one gets through the immigration barrier in their own strength. But actually, the story doesn't have to end sadly because, point three, 
Jesus goes on to say, God can do the impossible. All things are possible with God. I think this starts to explain why entering God's kingdom like a child is the only way it can be. We have to receive the kingdom, not earn it or achieve it, because only God can make it possible. To put it another way, only God himself can enable sinful people, like you and me, to enter a holy kingdom. Only he can make forgiveness possible. And in fact, at this point in Mark's gospel, that's exactly what Jesus is going to do. He's been saying again and again that he's going to Jerusalem to die for his disciples. The king of the kingdom's going to the cross to make the impossible possible. Not to pay for his own failures, but to pay for ours. And so, of course, the only way to get into his kingdom is empty-handed dependence on Jesus and his death. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. That's our third point. God can do the impossible, so depend empty-handed on him. Really, it's just the first point again. But what about if you're already a Christian? What if you're thinking, well, I have entered God's kingdom? Well, I think this third point is absolutely crucial for life in the kingdom. You see, we've seen a number of impossible things that are required through chapters 8 to 10. A few weeks ago, we were thinking about taking sin seriously, about changing our ways, putting sin to death. With human effort alone, that's impossible. We can't change our hard hearts. But with God, all things are possible. He actually can. Likewise, Jesus has been calling us to sacrificial service, calling us to be a servant like him, to deny myself, take up my cross, follow him. Humanly, that's impossible. I look at my own selfishness and I think, how am I going to do that? But with God, all things are possible. In chapter 9, the disciples were faced with with, uh, evil and destruction far beyond what they could deal with. Jesus pointed out they should have prayed because all things are possible for the one who believes. God can do the impossible, so depend empty-handed on him. Actually, this has really struck me, I think humbled me this week. See, normally preaching this passage, it's polite at some point, especially in a kind of Western church, a rich church, it's polite at some point to say, well, don't worry, the command he's given is not for everyone. We're not all supposed to give away our money. And there's truth in that. Actually, the New Testament as a whole doesn't say Christians should never have wealth, but says Christians should use wealth generously for others and the gospel. This isn't a kind of blanket command. And I think when, when that get, point gets made, we all breathe a sigh of relief and think, oh, thank goodness, because that was impossible. But actually, Jesus has asked us not a lower commitment, but a higher one. He's asked us to lose our lives, to deny ourselves and lose our lives for his sake and the gospel. He's asked us to be willing to put him first in every area, not just our wallets 
before every other allegiance or ambition or claim to popularity. All of my resources, time, energy, are at his disposal. And again, humanly speaking, it's impossible. I look at my heart, I look at my deep-seated selfishness, and I think that's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Which is to say, we need to come to him in dependence, empty-handed dependence, not just at the start of the Christian life, but every single day afterwards. We need divine help to, to use our lives in sacrificial service, to bear each other's burdens, as we heard in Bite Size, to take radical steps against sin, to realize that eternal treasure is lasting and the wealth and resources I have here are fleeting. We need God's help. Which is why the thing that makes me saddest in this tragic story of the rich man, so keen, so sincere, is that he never asked Jesus to help him. Striking that, isn't it? He did come asking. He asked for advice on what he could do to get eternal life. But when he finally got the difficult answer, go and give your wealth away, he never asked Jesus for help. He just walked away. He didn't do what the desperate dad in chapter 9 did. Jesus, if you can do anything, please help me. He didn't say, Jesus, I do believe, help my unbelief. He didn't pray. And I've been deeply challenged reflecting on this. How often is that what I do? I hear a challenge from Jesus. I think it sounds impossibly high or hard. And I don't even pray before I give up or I water it down. But God can do impossible things. He can open blind eyes. He can open the gate to his kingdom for free through the cross. And he can turn self-centered disciples into sacrificial servants. So we should depend empty-handed on him. And when we do that, we discover that God is no man's debtor. There's nothing we give up that he doesn't give us a hundredfold. And this is our final and closing point, just briefly. Huge blessings come to those depending on Jesus. I don't actually know in verse 28 what, what tone Peter has when he asks this, when he says this. See, we've left everything and followed you. I don't know if he's trying to kind of show off a bit and say, look, at least we didn't do what that guy did. Kind of, look at us. We've left our fishing business. It may be that. He may still be thinking in a kind of points-based system. He's higher up the ladder. And you might expect Jesus to say, have you not understood anything I've said? It's all about coming independence and empty-handed. It might be that. But either way, Jesus answers with the most amazing promise, a promise I want us to end on. Verse 29, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. This is the most amazing of promises. Compared to what we give up, Jesus gives back of a different order, a hundredfold. 
And I remember being blown away the first time I came across this as an adult because I'd always thought Christian life was purely suffering now, glory later. But actually Jesus says some of these blessings are now. Yes, there'll be suffering, there'll be sacrifice, cost, things we give up. For some Christians, that level of cost can be extremely high as they switch allegiance to Jesus. I think of a dear brother in London from a Muslim background who'd been ostracized by his family. Actually, he was regularly heckled by uh, members of the community when he was walking down the streets. I know that's an extreme example, but, but it happens in all sorts of ways at lower levels. Students who become Christians at university to the disappointment or confusion of their families. They hope it's just a phase. Um, ministry associates who are training um, it, it, whose families might be disappointed at a good education is being wasted on a low-paid ministry job. Perhaps it's friends and colleagues at work that, that we knew from the past who, whose lives are going up and up and up while we continue to serve the gospel and so maintain the same standard of living, downward mobility even. Christian life can be costly if we take Jesus seriously. But actually, Jesus says, whatever cost you've experienced, God is no man's debtor. No one loses out following Jesus, not just eternity, but even now. How is it? Well, through houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, even now. What's that talking about? Well, being part of Jesus's church, Jesus's family, both locally and globally, the massive blessing of being part of the church as we bear each other's burdens. I was thinking this week about how many ways God has blessed us as a family through other Christians in the last few years. And the list is extensive. I don't have time for everything on it. And, but Christians have given us stuff, baby equipment, toddler clothes, furniture. Christians have enabled us to go on holiday by providing a place. Christians have provided amazing childcare effectively, free, wonderful, engaging childcare as we juggle ministry and Jesse's health. Christians have included us in their families when we were grieving, not able to have children. Uh, Christians have welcomed us into our, their homes uh, all over the world. Wherever we've gone, we've found Christian brothers and sisters in countries as diverse as France or Uganda or America or Scotland. We discover we have brothers and sisters and houses and lands across the globe, which means when we give up our self dependence, our self-security, when we turn to Jesus in empty-handed dependence, it turns out that God is no man's debtor. Did you notice the word at the start of verse 30? You will receive all these blessings. Receive the kingdom on day one like a child. Go on receiving as God provides blessings for us now and in eternity. Christian life is actually one of receiving the generosity of God empty-handed. And sadly, that rich guy didn't know what he was missing. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would help anyone listening who has not yet entered your kingdom to receive it in empty-handed dependence. And Father, for those of us 
in your kingdom, living with Jesus as our king. Please help us, like little children, to depend on you day to day. And so follow Jesus on the road of sacrificial service. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.